The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From the evening news to the latest films and novels, we are attracted to crises and the trials and tribulations of life. So is this focus on negative human experiences universal, a hangover from our evolutionary past and originally a survival technique? Or is it a symptom of a culture in decline? Should we seek to snap out of this pessimistic cultural focus and instead celebrate success stories and look positively to the future? Joining us to debate whether we are prone to catastrophizing are award-winning authors Elise Valmorbida and Meg Rossoff, as well as philosopher and honorary professor at UCL Nick Zangwill. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Marianne Seagard. Thank you very much and welcome to Crisis and Desire. From the evening news to the latest films and novels, we're attracted to crises and the trials and tribulations of life. The pandemic brought with it myriad stories of human suffering, whether from illness, isolation, joblessness or death, which we readily consumed. But the healthiness of this fascination with misery is questionable, potentially leaving us with a distorted picture of the state of affairs and low expectations for our own happiness. So is this focus on negative human experiences universal, a hangover from our evolutionary past, perhaps originally a survival technique? Or is it a symptom of a culture in decline, an expression of a fear that our days of glory are behind us? Should we be seeking to snap out of this pessimistic cultural focus and celebrate instead stories of success and look positively to the future? Or is it just that crises make good drama? Well, we've got a great panel to uh, investigate this today. Um, I'm just going to introduce them first before they do their pitches. Elise Valmorbida is the author of the award-winning novel The Madonna of the Mountains. And she's also an award-winning indie film producer and wrote Saxon, the making of a guerrilla film. Meg Rosoff is an American-born children's and adult writer based in London. She's the acclaimed author of How I Live Now and Just In Case. And her latest book, The Great Godden, has been described as a coming-of-age tale about a summer where everything changes. For the worse? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, Nick Zangwill is a British philosopher and honorary professor at UCL and Lincoln Universities. He's known for his expertise on meta-ethics and aesthetics, especially the philosophy of music and visual art. So you probably know the format. I'm going to ask each of them to do a three-minute pitch on the question, why are we so fascinated with negative human experiences and catastrophe? 
and then we're going to go on to debate the subject. So, Elise, over to you. Thank you, Marianne, and thank you everyone for being here. Um, the devil gets all the best tunes. If you read Milton's Paradise Lost or Paradise Regained, the devil gets all the best lines. Dante's Inferno is much more interesting, much more compelling than Dante's Paradiso. In fact, heaven's kind of boring compared to those wonderful circles of hell. Shakespeare's tragedies are described as great, and we tend to dismiss the comedies as being frothy delights, uh, even though they're written just as beautifully. If Romeo and Juliet met, fell in love, got married with the nod of approval from the in-laws and settled down, there would be a story of one sentence. In fact, there probably wouldn't even be a story. Instead, we get family feuding, jealousy, violence, murder, suicide, more suicide, meddling incompetence, and, you know, lots of things that just go wrong. But lots of bad luck, lashings of bad luck. That has fueled a colossal ongoing industry of Romeo and Juliet inspired films, operas, ballets, songs, poetry, you name it. It seems we're predisposed to give more value to tragedy than to comedy. And I think this has something to do with uh, a much favored uh, view in the world of evolutionary psychology, which is that we are um, predisposed to have a negativity bias. Something about our prehistoric brains or the leftovers of that tell us to be more concerned about survival than anything else, certainly not appreciating beauty. So we're more interested in the negative. We're more compelled to, to be attracted to the negative. We spend more time with it. We pay it more attention. We learn from it and we remember it more than we remember the positive. So news coverage is mostly negative. Like Romeo and Juliet, it doesn't really make great news or a great story if we were to say that every day, today, yesterday, and the day before, almost 10 million Londoners rubbed along kind of mildly and moderately. Instead, we focus on the crime rate or the death toll. And apparently this phenomenon is global. Studies have been done that show that this happens worldwide. People are predisposed towards negative news. They're much more interested in it, much more compelled by it. I don't write news. I write fiction and non-fiction. When I write fiction, I tend to write books that go towards the dark or the tragic or the bleak, and weirdly, this makes me feel good. When I write non-fiction, I tend to be a bit more overtly positive. The word happy even makes it into the title, so my new book is The Happy Writing Book. It's not happy clappy, it's not sunshine from first page to last, but it's about dealing with all of this negativity with a kind of pragmatic optimism. It could be said to be my own version of existentialist stoicism even, a way of saying life is dreadful, life is also beautiful and short. If I'm going to be alive, I might as well make the best of it for myself and for other people. So that's a kind of philosophy, a kind of practical philosophy, a way, a way of living. Of course, life is not perfect, nothing's perfect, it's all a work in progress, but at least we can be committed to doing our best to make that work in progress as good as it can possibly be. That's my pitch. Thanks so much, Elise, fantastic. Meg. Right. Well, there's an expression in America which I discovered that a lot of people in England don't know very well, which is when you're driving along the motorway, you get stuck, or the highway, obviously, because we're in America, you get stuck for rubbernecking delays. And rubbernecking delays, if you don't know what they are, are exactly what they sound like. It's when you stretch your neck out the window to see if you can get, catch a glimpse of the decapitated person in the accident that you're passing on the motorway. And 
That's basically my vision of how human beings, how their predilections work. If you need proof of that, go to The Guardian every morning, as I do, and look at the 10 most read articles. So there's obviously Boris Johnson fucks up, we'll skip that one. Mortory atrocities, we'll skip that one. Then we go to minor film star who you've barely ever heard of, dies age 43. Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> the next one will be Child Savage by Dog, always good for a laugh. Yesterday, there was a really good one on largest child porn distributor in the world arrested. I went right to that one. And I, as I'm doing this, I'm asking myself, why do I care about these things? Why do I care about the actor I've barely ever heard of? But I want to know whether he killed himself or whether he died of uh, cancer or, or something else. So you could say that human beings basically do tend very much towards the dark. And of course, as a writer, I'm always looking for the creative arc. Well, the creative arc of human life is pretty grim, basically. Uh, we've got a very short time, and then we're dead. And really, there's kind of no coming back from that. You know, it all ends in death. So you can understand how we're sort of bleak, and why people, for instance, in the 16th century, used to like to gather in town squares to watch people being burnt alive. On the other hand, children, we have the internet. And what is the most popular thing on the internet? Yes, it's pictures of cute kittens. So I would say that it kind of goes in either direction. We've got child pornography on one side, which is just irresistibly attractive for reasons that I'm somewhat abashed and ashamed to admit. And I'd like to say, as Pete Townsend of The Who did, that he's interested in it purely for academic reasons. But really, you're interested in why somebody would do it, and maybe what even does it look like? I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff in the human brain. On the other hand, pictures of fluffy kittens. And I have to say, if I can't sleep at night, I have a, a website that I go to, and it's not pornography. Well, it is. It's dog pornog pornography. <laughs> and it's a website called Dogs Blog. And it's all the dogs, rescue dogs, in the country who need a home. And so I'll go through them. If I'm really upset and really can't sleep, I go to the rehomed columns, because that's all the happy endings. <laughs> Thank you. OK, Nick. Thank you very much. I'm going to, the trouble with going last is you somehow need to tread on previous speakers but, um, and re recapitulate. But I think that life has its ups and downs and there's no getting away from that. And we wouldn't, we shouldn't wish for it not to be like that. So consider grief. It's one of the most terrible things. Um, it's devastating when you lose a loved one or someone very close to you. But would you want there to be a world without grief? Right. No, you wouldn't. A world without grief would be a world without love as well. So the two are sort of linked together. So there is this light and this dark side, 
um, to our existences, but it's not as if you could pull them apart in, uh, um, as you might fantasize that, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could just have the light, the good things without the bad sides. In many cases, they're linked together and grief is a case of that, where if, if anyone has felt grief, it's, you, you realize there's something about it where it's a recognition of a love which has been something incredibly positive as well. So the sort of desire for a life with only the positive, it's like children who only want to eat sweets or one of those American teen movies where everything's great and, and everyone's applauding the, the people at the end as they stand on the stage. There's this mixture um, and life is inevitable, that's how it's got to be. And it's sort of childish to wish for uh, um, a, li a life with, with just one side of that. Now, on the other hand, there, there is this interest, which other speakers have talked about, this uh, interest in the dark side, uh, which you get in the Oprah Winfrey uh, kind of TV, where you zoom in on the tears and you're especially interested in, in uh, the trauma of others. And this can be as a very sort of perverse uh, thing, as I very much agree with your, the rubbernecking um, thought. But I think at this point that there's no getting away. We have to recognize the dark side in human nature. And I think both speakers, both other speakers agree with this. Something that this is something that Freud emphasized, that there's, there's the, the, the sort of destructive urge that human beings have, that at its worst comes out in genocide and genocidal desires. And that's as much part of our nature as the more creative. So there's, there's the urge for destruction and death and to take things into non-existence. And then there's also the other side of us, which values uh, that you find in love, particularly where uh, you're, not just you're not appreciating the good qualities of someone. You're not, you know, love isn't a reward for someone's virtue. You're celebrating their existence. And so that's also an aspect of uh, our nature. And they're locked together with this horrible sort of urge to destroy that we also have for its own sake. So the question is, there's light and there's dark. We have both of these. And there's this, if you like, there's an evil inclination and there's a sort of urge to goodness as well that we both have. And we're a mixture of these forces. And this is very much, I'm not a huge Freudian fan. I just think he got this, this much right. So it's part of the dark side is part of human nature. And I think the best thing really is to admit it. And again, agreeing with some of the previous comments, you know, think of the, 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 watching, the, watching those planes smash into the building. You can watch plane crashes in slow motion. And there's something transfixing. It's something almost pornographic. I very much agree with that in the way we're, we're drawn to that. Um, and it's sort of, it is an evil. And it's there in human nature, it seems to be just waiting to come out in these sort of purulence, is that the word, um, uh, interest in looking at things like this. But on the other hand, you wouldn't want life to be full of good news like it was in the old Soviet bloc, which is just good news, good news, and that's also depressing in its own, in its own way. So what I want to finish by saying really is this this dark side we have this dark side in human nature but it's sort of a problem it's there for a problem for each for each of us individualistically it's a problem freud thought that a lot of the nasty phenomena in, in europe in the, the 1930s were traceable to this death instinct uh, which is then externalized so it's also a problem how to deal with it. But the thing is, it's not going anywhere. There's no going to be human, human society is not going to evolve, so we get rid of it. So the question is, for this audience, and I think for each of us and for society, is really how we deal with this dark side.
That's right. Thank you very much. Well, I think you all seem to agree that there's a bit of a yin and yang going on here. You know, light and dark, love and grief, kittens and violent pornography. But I think the question is, do we disproportionately focus on the dark side? So is there something fundamental about human nature that, that causes us to focus more on crisis? and on the dark side. Meg, why don't you start? I mean, I, I, I would say that there is something in human nature that causes us to focus inordinately on a kind of pornography of dark and light. And I was, I was trying to find someone who spoke Latin earlier so I could really get to the basis of the word pornography because all the definitions just say it's all about naked ladies. But I would define pornography as sensation without content. And I think it's no coincidence that the internet, you know, the biggest searches on the internet are pornography, of which 88% apparently has an element of violence, and cute kittens. And they're both, so, they're both exactly part of the same sensation without content. And I think that there is a, there is a tendency, there is a real attraction in human nature to sensation without content because it's back to what we were saying before about children eating too much sugar. It's um, sedative. It, it doesn't cause you to think too hard. You don't have to think too hard about human nature. Uh, it's just more and more and more sensation. And it comes down probably to the question that we all asked if we ever did a philosophy class in sort of sixth grade, where they said, you know, if you could hook you, and, and, and it's what, what you were saying as well, if you could hook your brain up, to have nothing but happy sensations for the rest of your life, would you do it? I have to say I kind of go for it, but I know not everybody would answer that way. But it's interesting that you say it's a sedative, because I would have thought it might be stimulation. It's the opposite of a sedative. It excites people to see violence and gore and planes crashing into skyscrapers and that sort of thing. It, yes, but it's a sedative in terms of um, sedating the, the, the human requirement for stimulation. Uh, it's uncomplicated stimulation. It's, it satisfies it. It fills those receptors. So, Romeo and Juliet, uncomplicated? Yes, Romeo. indeed. I'm thinking, I'm interested in this word sedative yeah. as well, because I think um, the studies uh, tell us that people have to increase their level of extremity when they consume porn, and consume they do. Once it's consumed, it's gone. They need to do the next level up. It's a bit like gamifying. and. Perhaps there is an element of sedation going on there because people become inured and, and oblivious to, to what was level one. And before you know it, they're at level two, level three, level four, and it becomes more and more extreme. And it's well known that, that pornography ruins people for actual sensate, con consensual sex. It no longer does what it's supposed to do because the sensation levels have become so high that they can't be matched by real life. But, but I wonder whether, um, just moving away from porn for the moment, when we get excited by watching violent films or uh, indeed planes flying into skyscrapers or rubbernecking, what we're actually doing is trying to learn from the experience. So we're trying to think, you know, if I, if I read this book about, um, I don't know, a woman who's been horribly abused, maybe if it happens to me, I'll be able to deal with it better because I've, because I've sort of lived through it vicariously. Do you think there's some sense of... But 
the carer's that's a, that's learning. A, that's a kind of learning, but there's another kind of learning, which is to um, learn to explore those very difficult feelings in oneself. You know, people for a while wondered um, and got worried why it is that when we read folk tales and fairy tales to children, they're so full of, you know, death and murder and hunger and, you know, people, you know, trying to eat you for breakfast. But children actually are not terrified by those experiences because they're experiencing those stories in the comfort and safety of their bed with mum or dad or their carer reading those stories to them so that they know themselves that they're not about to be eaten by a big, bad, scary wolf or, you know, hunted down by the axeman. So it's about appreciating those darker shades of human experience in a kind of safe environment. And I think that's what stories do for us all the time. And we still do that as adults when we go to the, the theatre, when we, I, mean, I remember studying revenge tragedies, you know, that kind of Jacobean phase just after Shakespearean. And, and I remember quite a few of us were questioning why on earth is this entertainment? These are full of death, destruction, rape, violence, the most appalling crimes. But it was, it was like this cathartic experience, but also this ability to make sense of the difficulty and the challenge of experience. And I wonder whether, as our lives on average actually get less violent, uh, I mean, we do, of course, have a rather violent um, virus trying to attack us, but, but generally less violent. Maybe we, uh, maybe we seek out fictional violence more. What do you think, Nick? Um, well, I think there's the, there's the recognition of the, the nature of life that we, there is, there's, there's love and death, there's, 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 create, there's existence and there's destruction, and then there's the question of the representation of that. And um, it's no bad thing that we want, want to represent the things that are important to us. And of course, children, you can't fool children. So, you know, so they want their tales are going to also represent the, th the things that are important, um, which they know are important. The question then is sort of what we do with that uh, and then how you, whether, whether you could, whether the, the representation in fiction or films or whatever of the negative side of things can be used in a positive way. And that's, that's the challenge in many ways. So a philosopher, Nietzsche, for example, was predated Freud, but he very much uh, was aware of these negative sides to human nature, but he saw the task as, mo as using them in a positive way. So we, you know, we're aware of death and we have this destructive urge, but maybe if you can turn that around and channel it in a, in a way which is creative Absolutely. in some ways, that's, that's the sort of challenge that uh, many, if you, if you can do that. But that's not easy when, on the other hand, we're being sucked into the sort of more sentimental uh, representations, which really are, are a denial of that reality. And I, so and it's, I actually, it's a problem. It's and, a problem. And back to this idea of, you know, pornography in the wider sense. I mean, I'm not talking about sex pornography necessarily, but um, a huge amount of, of, well, I mean, I, I know for certain that the sale of uh, detective novels, murder mysteries, violent films, goes up when the economy is doing well. So when everybody's feeling safe and happy, we need more kind of sentimental, violent stimulation without very much content. Literature, you know, it's what I do for a living. I, I believe in it more than anything as, as a forum to be able to allow people to experience things that they're never going to be able to experience in their own lives, or they won't be able to experience maybe for a number of years. However, the vast majority of writing, of books, of stuff that sells, of movies, doesn't actually grapple with those subjects. It presents it as a kind of sentimentalized version, you know, the, um, about 
15 years ago, there was a big series called A Boy Called It. Does anybody remember that? Was that about a boy who had been horribly brutalized by his mother and forced to eat shit and lived in a box? And then both of his siblings, I think, sued the brother because they said, no, that never happened in our family. For me, the interesting takeout of that is, of course, that every family is like Rashomon. You know, you're looking at it from different versions of a prism. And what one child's hideous upbringing was another child's perfectly happy upbringing. But what I remember about that was my child was in primary school, and there was a little girl who was in her class who uh, had a terrible, terrible family situation. In fact, I'm not even sure she had a family. I think she was um, fostered, and um, her mother was a drug addict, and she uh, really had an incredibly horrible time. And her favorite books in the world were these books, A Boy Called It. Now, was she trying to make sense of her own personal situation, possibly. Was it encouraging to her to think that somebody had a worse life than, than she had? Or was there just a kind of sedation in this, this voyeurism, sort of? And, and actually, I think it goes all the way up to the Booker Prize. I mean, I won't, I won't mention particular titles, but you can ask me after. But, you know, there are an awful lot of books that have won the Booker Prize recently, which I, I read as a kind of, kind of voyeuristic porn, which give you really creepy, horrible, vile experiences, but don't actually give you the kind of, the, the, the content, the, literar, the literary substance that makes that kind of stuff meaningful. Nick, you want to come in? Yeah, yeah um, I was supposed to be a bit controversial, aren't we? Oh, yes, please can, do, can feel I mean, free. So, so, <laughs> so I, hope, I hope you won't be offended, but I mean, I mean, there's, a, there's something going around here, which is the sort of, there's the bad literature, the sort of pornographic literature, and then there's the good sort. Now, Plato, I know that I'm a big fan of Plato, he had the view that all literature um, was very impressive and very seductive, and we should treat novelists, both of you, with the greatest of respect as we escort you to the city walls. Indeed. And say, yeah. Bye. Banished. 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 Yeah. Um, Too dangerous. Well, no, he thought there was an inevitable, it, it wasn't just the sort of, the bad literature, it was that there was an inevitability of failing to grasp um, the, the truth about reality, which is that uh, it's part of the business of, of literature to distort. Um, and it's always, uh, even like, it's, all, it's always a, di a stor distortion. Uh, and it's not just the sort of the bad kind, which um, I'm sitting here sort of saying, oh, well, there's this bad stuff. And what I do is much better, that all literature has that function of, of Well, and not uh, just literature. Of, um, Distorting, indeed, indeed. So, so you got to. But if you want to grasp the horrible reality, you've got to grasp it as it were nakedly, without representation of any kind, which is inevitably going to be distorting. I think. I think Plato's trouble was that he had this notion of this perfection, this impossible perfection, and that anything we could try to do to, in inverted commas, represent that perfection would be necessarily imperfect. Therefore, all art is imperfect. All art is 
incomplete, all art is lesser than this notion of the sublime. So I think he tripped himself up on that old chestnut and shouldn't be putting us out into the, into the um, extreme ends of the empire. Uh, that's, a good that's a very good reply, I have to say. <laughs> but, but actually, it, moving on from that, even non-fiction, you could say, is distorting. I mean, I spent most of my life as a journalist and we're much more likely to report bad news yes. than good news. But, and I remember writing columns about this, saying this is the first year since anyone can remember in which we haven't had a winter crisis in the yep. NHS. Yep. And as a result, probably thousands of lives have been saved, and this is a fantastic news story. But it's not reported on because it's never actually, it's not an event, it's no. a process. But that's and because journalism is like pornographic literature in a way. Journalism is offering uh, sensation without content to some extent. Yeah, there's a lot of content there too. No, there is content there, and I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I, I'm all for journalists. I'm always very shocked when they come down below, kind of. State uh, agents and politicians. You know, and, and I'm, politicians I'm, yeah. I think there's a really um, good, strong movement now, though, which is constructive journalism, and it's it's rigorous, it's relevant, it's not just like happy clappy. You know, the world's a great place, but it's actually a movement, and it's it's to combat this exact trend. And there's um, I don't know if anyone's seen a um, a website and magazine called Positive News, for example. It seems to be a fairly good, benign example of this. And just this week, they reported that four endangered species of tuna has been you know, shown to be saved. They also reported on the Global Peace Index, which actually confirmed, study by study by study, that more countries were more peaceful last year than there were countries that were not peaceful. And this minor, small, gradual improvement is actually incredibly good news because of course we have this impression from the news that um, everything's getting worse and people are more violent and people are living in less peace. So in a, in a site or a magazine like that you have reporting that covers that sort of story and it is a story just like your story about the NHS, you know, a winter a crisis being avoided this year. It's how it's reported, it's where it's reported. Another, another really specific way in which this constructive journalism operates is that it offers ways of con you know, concrete ways of actually making the world a better place. So five realistic, concrete ways that you can help an Afghan refugee, you, right now in Britain. So rather than listening to the news and feeling helpless and inured because you feel helpless, it actually opens up a little opportunity for you to be constructive and actually do something about an issue that matters to you or something that affects you. But I, mean, I think that's great, though, on the whole, people don't buy that sort of um, media coverage. But I, I wonder whether, as a culture, we have become more pessimistic in modern times because we, are, we have so much more news, bad news, on the whole, coming at us. I mean, do you think we're more pessimistic than 100 years ago, say? Yeah, well, you have, if you were a serf in the Middle Ages, you know, if, if anybody reported the news to you, it would all be bad. I mean, you know... But you didn't know on the whole. But you didn't, you didn't know, know on the whole, and you didn't have time much to think about it because you were Indeed. too busy working. And you didn't have time to be depressed because you were too busy working. Yeah. And the news you got was probably 40 years old as well. Yeah. So that's another, another issue. It's less nearby, less relevant, less urgent. I just wondered, isn't it, isn't it sort of built into the nature of things? Look, you've got something, here we are sitting here, or you've got something chugging along existing, and it can carry on doing what it is, and that's not very interesting, or it can go out of existence, one of, you know, one of us could fall dead or something like that, that's sort of, there's more drama there, or yeah. 
something can pop into existence, that's also, that's also sort of dramatic. Something coming into existence is dramatic, or becoming very good, or something going out of existence, that's very dramatic. But just things chugging along, carrying on existing, isn't sort of noteworthy. It's not news. Uh, uh, it's not news, and <laughs> yeah. isn't that, I mean, isn't that how it has to be? Yes, and that's how could, story could, yeah. story making works yeah. as well. You know, I teach creative writing, and when when people have um, a really good, strong idea about a character that they want to explore, and the character's fascinating and interesting, they want to do something and they do it. It's like, well, there's no story. Back to Romeo and Juliet, you need to have that forward momentum, something driving a character forward, but you need to have obstacles holding right. that character right. back from achieving that desire or that want or that ambition. Without right. the friction, there's no story. That's right. So it's got to be a mixture yeah. of the light yeah. and the dark. So you've yeah. got to yeah. overcome. Yep. The, this obstacle yes. and then yep. win through or something like yep. that but without the without the dark the light and the dark have got to fit together it's an old manichaean zoroastrian idea well hopefully us novelists go beyond the manichaean and we get a bit more of a spectrum yeah <laughs> rather than well, that, that polar bit, polar opposition yes, thing that's right I, I have a friend who was talking about the 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 acknowledgement that we all talk about our friends we all say terrible things about our friends if we're if there are six sets of people in a room uh, and we've all known each other a long time but one of them isn't there then that's what we're going to talk about and, and she said um, I, I accept that this happens she said but I always imagine that in the room they go around and they say oh yeah those two terrible terrible she's psychotic he's a control freak oh yeah those two he should be in jail and that when they get to her and her husband they go nice couple <laughs> move on so you know some of it is uh, you know, the, the desire to kind of see your own life as a um, nice couple, as the, as the kind of niceness where the, you're surrounded by horror in life, um, uh, and which again is, is probably human nature. So it <laughs> makes us feel better because we're not experiencing this violence. Yes, exactly. I mean, my, uh, my generation, you know, upper middle class, white, Jews of my generation have ha probably had the best, I'm 64 years old, 64 years of almost any time in history. But, you know, if, if I've broken my leg or if I want a boyfriend and don't have one, my week is ruined. <laughs> so, you know, we've got macro and we've got micro and, and human nature somehow has to kind of sort all that out. So I just thought I used to have a, a, a website before my university closed it down um, where um, I, I went through the things I'd been reading uh, which I'd liked and I, I, was, I only allowed myself to say positive things about those readings and other people would see them and maybe go to them as well. And it was, I had to, it was, it was hard work. I had to force myself just to be positive all the time and, and to overlook uh, and, and just to pick on the good side of the, all these things because I was also recommending them to other people. So it was just, the, the, my point was just that it involved a lot of discipline to, to force that side of me to be, to, just to be the creative and positive side and it was hard work. Sure. Well, that actually leads us into the third question, and I think we're, we're already starting to answer it, which is, can we imagine a future where optimism rules, and would it be a good thing? No. Well, I always call myself a cheerful <laughs> pessimist, but I basically think human nature is appalling. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, you think pretty most much. people love yeah. the people close to them, yeah, want good things harsh. to happen to it's them? too harsh. Uh, well, I, I, yeah. my first year in university, I did a course in psychology where we learned about the Zimbardo and... Um, 
who was the other one? Uh, Milgram. Milgram Studies. Yeah. Where they took, God, if nobody knows, if, if there's somebody here doesn't know about them, one, they split up a completely nice, sweet group of, of um, college students, half with the jailers, half with the prisoners. And the, the um, experiment was supposed to go on for three weeks. They had to call it off after six days because the jailers, who were just ordinary college students, um, had so badly brutalized the prisoners. And the other one, which everybody knows, is the, the, the one where you have to give shocks to a test subject. And uh, some ridiculous percentage of people were willing to keep shocking the test subject uh, up to the point where they were screaming in pain and then went silent. And, you know, I just kind of think that bodes bodes ill. I know human beings are capable of altruism and niceness and, and um, you know, generally being good when the conditions kind of suit them. But, you know, if you look what happened in the former Yugoslavia, kind of overnight people were slaughtering their neighbors. Same with the Hutus and the Tutsis. I mean, and, of course, Nazi Germany. Hmm. Helena Hancart? Um, it's, it's, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, but I'm also, I guess this is a, an emotional predisposition. I'm thinking of the likes of um, Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, where, you know, all, all the actual um, factual analysis of, of whether it's peace, women's rights, education, um, hunger, lack, hunger, of. lack yes. of, um, survival, longevity, health, you name it. On pretty much all those measures, things have actually improved, while our estimation of whether things are improving or not has actually become more negative. The only area that I think we could all agree uh, has definitely not improved, and that's you know, climate crisis. And I think that anxiety underpins all of humanity, even the people who are in denial and even the people who are um, doing what they can to, to change it or to uh, slow it down. I think that anxiety is like a, an existential anxiety, the way that people approaching the year 1000 were terrified in, in you know, Western countries, were terrified of the end of the world. In a bizarre, scientifically um, established way, we now have the possibility of extinction of all species, including our own. And I think that anxiety predisposes us to a kind of pe pessimism and, and perhaps a hunger and a thirst for sensation and what you're calling pornography. Sedation, yeah. Yeah, and sedation, because it's actually all too much to deal with. It feels overwhelming, unless you take the optimistic point of view, which is do your bit, be constructive, speak about it, write about it, act upon it, and do not become inert. But apparently the suicide rate among climate emergency workers is one of the highest uh, of any profession, maybe other than dentists. <laughs> but do you think it would be a better world if we were more optimistic? I think if we were practically optimistic, so when I talk about optimism, it's a pragmatic, practical kind of optimism. It's not just like positive thinking, oh, everything's lovely, not at all. It's actually about applying the best of your own skills to improving the world without you know, becoming a converter, um, but doing what you can, for example, towards um, the slowing down of cri climate crisis, as an example. Because yeah. if we're too pessimistic, it can turn into a sort of helplessness. Indeed, it? and inertia. And then we might as well just, you know, get that bottle of white tablets and do the job and spare everyone else the, um, you know, <laughs> the rest of it.
Yeah. I, I'd say a bit of I say a bit of a word for pessimism though. That's a pessimism about human nature to an extent that put pe put people in certain circumstances and with the the nicest possible people uh, that, that could be, you will find them doing terrible things. So I agree with that. That's one moral that comes out of the um, social psychology that you mentioned. So uh, a sort of naive optimism about how that people will behave in a very good way. You shouldn't build structures and systems and society expecting people to be good. Uh, and when people have tried to do that, it doesn't work. You've got to expect them to be grubby. Although, although usually they're not just being nakedly selfish, it's their families that they're thinking of. So it's a mixed story. But if you, if you build, so you've got to build in those some pessimistic uh, views about, uh, because that's just part of human nature again, that we are also selfish or selfish in an extended way, which involves those we love. And so if you don't build in rules that take account of that, then things will go wrong. But I, th I think in societies which have a higher proportion of people saying that they believe that on average other people are to be trusted, mm. are on the whole more successful societies and mm. people in them are happier. Yes, yes. Mm. And in fact those societies where um, the, the news is less sensationalistic and mm. reports on, on the peacefulness, for example, or the, the lack of crime, people's perception of crime and their own safety is actually much more positive. So when we feel more positive, we're less likely to go out feeling defended and aggressive because actually we're feeling safer and kinder. And this has a ripple on ripple effect, as you can imagine, even if you make a little experiment, you know, um, go out and even if you're not feeling too happy, smile at people. When you smile at people and they smile back, um, that little ripple of influence, apparently, and this has been tested, actually leads to an effect to people, I think as far as uh, removed from you as 30 people, because that smile connects to more and more and more and more people. So you, something as simple as that. So people who have a, a positive outlook actually, bizarrely, experience more positive events objectively reported. So putting on a positive or an optimistic mm, okay. hat, even an optimistic stride, can actually be a way of influencing the outcomes of your, your every day. And, and to me that brings, brings us back to the macro and the micro again, because I was just in a talk about meaning with Rupert Sheldrake and a nihilist uh, philosopher. And I was thinking as we were listening that being part of humanity is like being part of of the ant colony we all have our we all have our job we're all going to die we all do our job as best we can and as long as we don't attribute too much meaning to what the ant colony is doing what is the ant colony doing digging holes and making little passages and bringing food back and working for the good of the ant colony and all those things in human society make you feel better you know on the micro level they make you feel better as long as you don't ever think of the foot that's hovering over the ant colony <laughs> or the fact that a big rainstorm <laughs> is gonna kind of wash it all away or climate change is gonna wipe ants out altogether and actually, I'm torn I'm torn that's why I say I'm a um, optimistic no what am I a cheerful pessimist <laughs> But actually, I think you're right that helping people who aren't just your immediate family also makes you feel better. Yeah. And there's lots of evidence that going volunteering helps you combat depression, that yeah. sort of thing. All those things. Yeah. yeah. So we should all be optimists, constructive optimists. <laughs>
No? Well, but you could say you feeling better by, by um, volunteering isn't doing anything for all the miserable people in the world. No, but it's helping the people you're volunteering to help. Nope, that's absolutely so true. So got, you've got a nice ripple effect going that's there. That's absolutely true. And in helping those people that you're helping, they in turn will presumably feel a little better about their lot and they might be nicer to their dog or to their neighbor or, you know, and the ripples go on and on in ways that we can't possibly see uh, if, we, if we volunteer. Oh, true. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but when you think about what we know about mass murderers, a lot of them, they love their dogs. They were firmly committed to their children. They listened to Schubert yeah. uh, during the day before they did all their horrible killings. So I'm, you, it's not enough, I think, to, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with it. I, that bit of optimism, optimistic advice is, is a good path and, a good, you know, sure, it does do good things, but it doesn't really, uh, I don't think it, it deals with the evil urge, um, which is there in us, which I think for that we need a lot of, a d strong dose of pessimism. Uh, I'm not a Christian, but um, I think the Christians are sort of right about this kind of, this sort of crack in human nature, but there's no redemption, unlike Christians. I think it's there, there is a crack in human nature. We do have, um, we do have a capacity in certain circumstances to do terrible things. And however much we smile at people we meet on the street, five minutes later, we can and then uh, kill someone just for the sake of it. Well, I'm going to pick that, up on your crack, this yeah. crack idea. Yeah. This festival is called How the Light Gets In, and Into it's because of the yeah. Le Leonard yeah. Cohen lyrics. You know, yeah. it's because of the crack that the light gets in. Yeah. So I'm going to hang on to that one. But there is a crack as but, well. But let's yeah. distinguish yeah, yeah. between the micro and, and, and uh, micro and the macro. I mean, yes, at a macro level, there will always be evil murderers in society. doesn't mean that we're all harboring the potential to be evil mur murderers. I, you know, well, I don't think the, I'm, the I'm point, not going to go out and kill anybody. The point anybody, of this research is that in in the right circumstances, apparently all of us normal, are torturers. All, all of yeah. us have that capacity Some of to us. do that. Not everyone well, did. <laughs> no, the people yeah. who aren't. A large number. A large the people number who aren't torturers apparently are rebels. Yeah. Are are people yeah. who are social more misfits? Yeah, yeah social misfits. The only ones. I think oh, I think my my outtake. nice people are more likely to be. Torture. Yes, I'm with you with this. Yeah. I, I thought the part of the, the learning from that um, experimentation was that people are more willing to obey authority mm. than we thought. And so it was yeah. actually more about obedience and authority. Mm. So the minute someone is vested with authority because they've got a white coat and they're, and yeah. oh, I'm paying you and we're doing this experiment and you need to, people are much more um, obedient than we thought. I thought that was really the issue yes, that it was, was, was revealed. Yes, Milgram. Yeah. 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 So if we can work on that, and I'm sure we can, more rebellion, more dissidence, more creativity. Um, how old are you? 20. <laughs> I mean, I think, what, I think I would have agreed with you when I was 20 and maybe even when I was 30. Um, and I, I, I think one of the great things about getting older is that you, you become much more accepting of your own flaws, of the flaws of society, um, and one could argue more realistic, um, but I also think you tend to lose the optimism quite a lot. I think I believed, because I grew up in the 70s, with lots of free love and peace, and we actually thought we were going to make the world a better place, and I have serious problems with Steven Pinker's research, which we won't go into now, but, but um, I, I think, I mean, at 64, I accept that human beings are, 
are cracked, are deeply, deeply flawed, that life is deeply, deeply flawed. If you're unbelievably lucky, you get to be one of us sitting here yeah. uh, with enough money to live without having to go hungry, uh, with the leisure time to sit around and talk about ideas and read books. And if you're really lucky even to write books, but uh, I was uh, brought up very short by a friend of mine who was a banker and I said, aren't you ashamed of how you've spent your pathetic life? And he said, he said, how much good do you think you're doing as a writer for the for all of humanity? Um, and I realized that there is that kind of, you know, yes, well, I'm a writer, so obviously I'm helping people. Yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know. Maybe I'm not doing as much evil as a banker, but maybe I am, who knows? <laughs> okay, on that note, so I'd just like to thank Elise, Nick, and Meg very much for a fascinating debate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Marianne. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.